Everybody, if you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you guys all here this morning. As you know, each summer at Redemption Church, we study the Hebrew Bible. And this summer, we are in the book of Leviticus, and we're sort of preparing ourselves to jump into chapters 11 through 15, which are honestly some of the most difficult chapters to understand in all of the scriptures. There's just this massive cultural distance, you know, that, that comes between the world of Leviticus um, 11 through 15 and our world. Plus, it comes at like this early stage in development of the, the Jewish um, tradition and consciousness, and we've moved kind of beyond that. So like the, the ideas and practices seem very strange and foreign to us. And um, so we need a lot of preparation to be able to read these chapters well. So, of course, I mean, we've been taking our time. We're working through Leviticus slowly. We're building a vocabulary. And today we're going to kind of hit on a few central ideas and, and try to understand how they fit together. And, and these ideas really define the life of the Hebrew people. But the problem is they're often kind of misunderstood by Christians, like caric caricaturized, you know. And, and then dismissed as foolish, if not misleading. I mean, m most Christians, and I include myself in this until really I dug beneath the surface, most Christians have no idea how to read Leviticus, much less these, these certain chapters here. They're, um, especially 11 through 15, they're long chapters. They're, they just repeat over and over and over the same thing. They're very confusing. Plus, they're about, frankly, kind of cringy things, you know? that we don't usually mention at church. I mean, just look at the rundown of the major themes of the next five chapters of Leviticus. There is clean and unclean, animals and food. There's chapter 12 is about childbirth. 13 and 14 are about skin diseases and household mold. 15 is about blood and semen discharges. Let's go. Like, <laughs> it's going to be great. I mean, honestly, this is not like your typical mega church sermon series kind of material. Can you imagine the promo video, by the way, for that? You know, hey, everybody, invite your friends, co-workers, come join us for our big fall series on blood and semen discharges. Here's your handout, you know. It's not a great marketing strategy. But we're trying to do something different at Redemption. We're trying to let the Bible Jesus read shape our imaginations for how we understand what Jesus was doing. Kind of climb inside his world and the laws and the customs that shaped him and let them shape us as well so that when we jump back into our liturgical calendar, we'll have a much deeper understanding of what Christ was up to. Last week, if you remember, we, we left off with this command that Yahweh gives to the high priest Aaron, and the command is really sort of um, a baseline rationale for much of what comes after it in Leviticus, especially these strange requirements. The command is, you must distinguish the difference between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And this verse is actually packed with these very important Hebrew words and concepts that if we're going to keep reading in Leviticus, we're going to have to understand this stuff. So today we're just going to focus on these four important categories and try to get them straight, how they relate together um, in our minds so that we can keep reading in the coming weeks. It says, um, you must distinguish, which we talked about last week. Hopefully, hopefully you remember um, Badal. We talked about this ability to 
make distinctions, that's badal, between different kinds of things, different modes of being and acting. So it says you must distinguish the difference between then the holy and the common. Those, the two words used here are um, kadesh, which is related to kadosh we've been using, same, same root word, kadesh and kol. Um, so try to, try to say kadesh and say hol, but you have to kind of clear your throat. So say hol. That was lovely. It's like being in a baseball field. So, um, so um, Kadesh means holiness or a state of being holy, the, this quality of set-apartness um, for a specific person, purpose. And Chol means common. That's what it means, just mundane, ordinary, everyday stuff. It's often translated as profane, which I think is actually pretty bad because it has this negative connotation. It's just common, ordinary. And there's nothing wrong with things that are whole. Um, everything, in fact, starts out as whole. It just means it's, it's regular, it's common. In fact, the, the root of that word is the word for sand, which is funny, and it, which was everywhere, right? It's all over the place. It's the stuff that's everywhere. Everything in the cosmos begins as whole. Um, all of nature, rocks, trees, animals are, are um, common. They're whole. Even, even human beings our whole. We're, we're made out of the, the dirt. Um, and there's nothing wrong with this. It's just distinct from Kadesh. Does that make sense? And, and we, of course, we have the same kind of categories and things in our lives, like in clothing. You have like nice clothes that are set apart for special occasions, and then you have like the everyday stuff. That, that stuff's whole. It's common. It's ordinary. Or you might have dishes. Anybody have like fine china set apart for special occasions translation you never use the china it's a, it, you never even touch it it's just in a in a bin somewhere uh, and then there's the everyday stuff the, the you know flatware that's cool it's it's common it's ordinary there's nothing wrong with it it's just different than this this kadesh stuff that's holy it's set apart and um everything in the cosmos begins as whole and and only some of it can be holy. Well, we'll see how it's, it's actually, everything's intended for that, but they're trying to distinguish now. Just some things will get set apart for a special purpose, and those things are Kadesh, and human beings are supposed to learn how to distinguish between what's Kadesh and what is Chol. You must distinguish, it says, the difference between the holy and the common, and between, here's another pair, the unclean and the clean. The Hebrew word for, for clean here is um, tahor. It's similar to, remember the word tamim, an animal that's as it's supposed to be? Tahor is very close to this. It's, uh, a torha, tahor has this connotation of wholeness. A thing that is tahor is unblemished. It's not sick or deformed or diminished or defigured in any way. It's functioning rightly. And, and tahor has this kind of ceremonial connotation, kind of religious word. It means ritually or ceremonially. This is a clean thing. It's unblemished. And so it's existing in this wholeness, this, this kind of purity in terms of its form or function and relating. And so, so that's what it means. Tahor is, is unblemished or whole or pure, which makes it ritually clean. That's what, that's what they often translate as clean. And Tahor things are to be distinguished from things that are 
Tame. Say Tame. Tame is our big word. This is the big word for today that, that we need to focus on. Tame things are blemished in some way. They're diminished somehow. They're not whole for some specific reason, and so they are impure. It'd be lots of things, like there's, there's too much of it, there's too little of it, if some aspect of its being, something's out of proportion, so it doesn't look right or function right, like a, like a camel was unclean for them. It's thought because of the hump. The hump on it is like there's too much of this animal like right there. That's weird. And so it's, it's unclean. Or a rabbit. Rabbits are unclean because they have these hind legs. Like why do they need that much leg back there? This is not right. Or if somebody has like a deformity, a deformed limb or something that never fully developed. Anything out of the ordinary is, is tame. Or it could be that someone or something has been tainted in some way, like with a disease or sickness, like um, contaminated, exposed. And so these Tame things, for whatever reason, they're considered to be um, blemished in some way. Because, and because of this, they're ceremonially unclean. And we do this as well. Every, every culture has their version of Tame things, of pure and impure spaces. We still have these categories, depending um, probably on your level of OCD, you may have a lot of these categories. Um, anybody have a thing where like different foods can't touch each other on your plate? Anybody have that deal where like you need the baked beans to be in a separate dish so that they don't touch the bun on the burger, right? You know what I mean? That's a purity code. Is it, are people making fun of the person next to them as that was happening? It's like spouses. <laughs> like, don't want the juice from the baked beans touching the bread because then it's tainted. It feels tainted to me. That's a purity code, right? Or how about anybody like make people take off their shoes when they come into your house? Anybody do that? That's a, that's a common, that's a purity code, right? You ask your guests also remove their, their shoes. Anybody have the opposite? Like you have a weird thing about feet? You know, like other people's feet? You know, I touch them, you know, I see them. Anybody have that one? My little sister had that bad when we were kids, and we would just torture her with our feet. We were all the time putting, we would sneak feet up behind her in the seat of the car, so she would just notice it was sitting there, because, and then she'd be like, no, this is good. This is against my purity code. It's, it's really gross. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wonder what, what happens when those two groups get together. Like the people who make everybody take off the shoes and the people who can't stand feet, what happens when they go over to their house and everybody's shoes are off? Is it like, uh, like I'm losing my mind? We all have these. We have, we have purity codes, right? It's just, just part of the deal. A great example I've heard in a, in a couple of different places with scholars um, talk about our major purity codes in, in regard to restrooms and bathrooms the etiquette involved there. In our culture, a, a restroom is basically a de facto impure space. It's a tame space. It's kind of dirty and gross, and all kinds of dirty and gross things happen in that place. And in fact, if you don't wash your hands when you leave that place, then we're like, ew, go wash your hands. Like, you just came from a tame place into a, a, a whole place. Like, you, you need to go, um, you're, you're unclean, right? Go, go clean your hands. Uh, and if you think about it, like, this is not written down anywhere. It's just, it's just in our culture. It's in, in the air we breathe. Think how weird it would feel if you, like, if you're doing a buffet-style dinner at home or something, you fill your plate, and then you go sit in the bathroom and eat, right? <laughs> that would just be weird. 
Like, you, you, can't, you can't take something that's supposed to be clean like your food into this unclean space, right? There's a, a, you have an aversion to that. You'll eat in the kitchen, and sometimes, like, I mean, granted, we have teenage boys, but sometimes the kitchen is not any cleaner than the bathroom is, you know what I mean? I mean, there's, there's bacteria and food and, and saliva, and our pets go in there, but the kitchen is considered a clean space, so we'll just eat in there. The bathroom is, is unclean. It's tame, right? What's weird is we'll keep our toothbrush in the bathroom <laughs> with all those germs flying around. You just go and put it in your mouth every day, and it doesn't seem to bother us, although some of you are bothered now. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> And this probably has to do with the role that the toothbrush plays. It is for, it's an instrument of purification, right? So it can belong in there. It's cleaning stuff. It's making you okay to go outside of that, to get back to pure space. We have a, we have a toothbrusher in your family, and they just walk around outside the bathroom brushing their teeth. <laughs> Did anybody have this? Or somebody like who, who flosses in the car with you? And you're just like, no, that goes in the impure space. That goes in Tommy's space, not in this, right? Th these are all kind of weird purity codes. Every culture has their, their rituals and their ideas and their boundaries between them and how they should mix together and what needs to be kept separate. And we don't necessarily see them as religious, but in the ancient culture, everything was religious. You know, you didn't separate. And so they would take on symbolic meaning, spiritual meaning. Everything was religious. And so these Tehor things are, are unblemished and whole and pure, so they're ceremonially clean. But these Tame things, they're blemished. They're, they're diminished. They're impure in form or function. They've been tainted in some way, and so they're ceremonially unclean. And so Yahweh comes and says to the priest, you're going to have to learn this and then teach the people the difference between these four things, between the holy and the common, or the clean and the unclean. Kadesh, chol, um, tahor things that are pure, that are clean, and tamay things that are blemished and unclean. And kind of the question, of course, as, as Christians that we have is why? You know, why do the children of Israel need to learn this distinction? And the answer, of course, is complicated. It's not easy. Um, there's no one place you can go in the scriptures that will explain it for all times and places. Because the answer is kind of embedded in this narrative and in the life of this people that stretches over thousands of, of years. But in general, the reason goes something like this, that God created the world to live to last and to flourish and find shalom, peace. And God created humans to play a special role as God's representatives within the world. And they were told, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, like have dominion over it, show leadership over it, cause everything to flourish by tilling the earth and keeping the, earth, the preservation role. Make everything flourish and find peace and wholeness. And Humans were given this task, and then they were sustained in life by this tree, the fruit of the tree of life. And then, then it all goes south, right? The first humans um, mess up, and they're kind of thrust away. They can't be trusted with that kind of power, so they're, they're thrust outside the garden, and then this potential for death enters the scene. 
And death is the serious threat. And ever since that time, this is the Hebrew story, ever since that time, human beings, we are constantly living at the border between life and death. And an essential belief of the Hebrew people was that the only way to keep from kind of crossing over that border and being swallowed up by death is to draw near to God, who is the sustainer of life. And whereas Adam and Eve, they could just eat from the tree of life and be sustained, humans no longer live in Eden. And so anywhere we go, we're surrounded by death. We're constantly living at the border between life and death. And the only way to keep from being swallowed up from, by death, I don't mean just at the end of life, but just in the middle of life by things that are dying, it is to draw near to God. At the same time, human beings, and this is still the rationale, human beings are endowed with these just unique capacities. The image of God within us, our minds, our, our human faculties and abilities and instincts, we have, there's just, I mean, this is a hot rod we're riding around in. And we can do a lot of things. I mean, we can push things one way or the other toward life or toward death, not just for ourselves, but for our community, for other communities, for creation itself. We could destroy the world. We have the ability. Humans are endowed with these incredible capacities to impact the world for better or worse. No other creature has this kind of potential just to unilaterally move all creation and really anything we encounter, either closer to life or closer to death, or you could say it if you, if everything was religious, closer to God and what is holy or farther away from God. And so God tells them, you need to pay attention. You need to learn how to distinguish Badal between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean, these tame things. And so God, God establishes, establishes these categories for them. And the establishment of these categories gives a new order to the world outside of the garden, an order that's meant to help them re relate to this death that's always creeping around them, right? And what really matters is not so much if things are holy or common, but what happens at the borders between them, how we navigate movement from one to the other. Only some things are holy, um, Kadesh. Most things are whole, common. Things that are common, whole, can exist in one of two categories. They can be pure or impure. They can be tahor or tame, clean or unclean. And only pure things have the potential to eventually become holy. Through, they go through rituals of some kind, and then they can actually become holy. Nothing impure can ever be holy unless it first becomes pure. In fact, it's strictly forbidden by Jewish law to bring anything impure even into a holy space. Tame things in, in Jewish law cannot become set apart as holy and they have, they're almost contagious. They would, they would ruin the holiness unless they first become pure and only then can a Tame thing become um, holy. And, and this is how they understood these four categories. And now, one extremely important detail in this about Tame. So Tame is the unclean stuff, stuff that is blemished in some way, contaminated or something. 
things that exist in this um, state are not necessarily bad, right? Tame does not mean sinful. It does not mean evil. This is extremely important. Ritual impurity does not mean you've done something wrong. That's not really how they, they saw it. What, what they believed is to exist in an impure state means that you have come in contact with someone or something that has suddenly brought you to the boundary between life and death. That's Tame. And death is this serious threat outside the garden, right? So far from that tree. This is huge. So I'm, I'm just going to stop here and kind of go back through this because it's super important. And I want to make sure that you're, you're tracking with the categories and, and how they fit together so that, because we're going to lean on this as we, we move on throughout the whole rest of, of Leviticus. Um, humans are no longer in the garden where they have this tree to sustain their life. Outside the garden, death is everywhere. And only this proximity to God gives a hope of living on through all the deaths that we experience in life and the ultimate death. And so God is trying to liberate. Remember we talked about that last week? God is holy, set apart for liberation. God's trying to liberate humans from all this fear about death that makes us crazy by teaching them to distinguish things that make for life, things that make for death, and how to proceed when we inevitably come into the presence of things that lead to death. When that happens, it makes us unclean. It makes us, um, but unclean, and those, those words, are, there's such a negative connotation. It makes us tame. It's better to just say, it's tame. It's like we're entering into a different phase here. So God establishes these categories, a way of ordering the world, holy and, and common things, um, some things are set apart as holy. Most things are common. It just means ordinary. And things that are common, ordinary, they can exist in two categories, pure and impure. Pure things can become holy, but impure things can't. They have to first become pure. And then impure things, tame, are not sinful or bad. They have just come into close contact with someone or something that has brought them right up to the boundary between life and death. And here's a twist. And this is the reason for this overlong introduction. Um, for the Hebrew people, for the Israelite people, at this time in their culture, the things that were most associated with the power of death, they were, they were thought to carry the power of death with them. The things that are most associated with death were certain kinds of animals that they would eat for food, reproductive bodily fluids from humans, skin diseases, fungus, household mold. It's the same stuff that these chapters are about. It's not arbitrary. The, the, the reason th these whole laws even exist is because they thought of these things as sort of uh, it's the power of death operating all around them in the world animals for food, who, what should you eat and not childbirth, um, skin diseases, household mold, bodily discharges of blood and semen. That's, they saw those things as being associated with the powers of life and death. And so when you came into contact with those things, you had come to the boundary and, and you needed to proceed with caution, 
And at that boundary, then they're like, you have reached, uh, you're in a special status called Tame. And there's nothing wrong with it, but heads up. Um, they were asked to take a beat, stop, look around, think carefully about where they are, what they're doing, what are the forces coming to bear upon them in their life and situation, especially what direction they're headed, and then to be very intentional about how they proceed from here to, and to have a, a sense of reverence for the powers that they're interacting with and to ponder what kind of steps they might need to take to make sure that the trajectory of their life from that point, that Tame point, would get them headed back toward God because their relation to God, their nearness to God, is what saves them from death, right? And the name that they had for that moment, that place, or those things, is, is Tame. We call it unclean, but Tame's prayed better. It doesn't mean sinful or bad. It just means they came into close proximity to the powers and the boundaries of life and death. And so they need to step back and, and proceed with reverence and caution because of the power of this moment. So unclean, you know, that's, that's a charged word for New Testament readers. Things that become Tame, you know. They're not bad. I mean, you were, you were according to the law, you were Tame when you had sex with your spouse, right? Which is, a, is named in the scriptures as a blessing. This is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But you're messing around with things that make for life and death. So you're Tame for the rest of the day. Think about what you're doing. Don't do it flippantly, right? Or when they bury a loved one, right, who had died. That's, that's a mitzvah. That's a good deed. That's a, a duty. Or childbirth made one Tame, right? Because it brings both mother and child, you know, right to the boundary of life, new life, and, and the threat of death. And so all kinds of accidental things that, that are not wrong or sinful or bad could make them Tame, ritually impure. It's just that they had come into contact with these powerful forces, and so they had some reflection to do, some waiting, some washing maybe. All of it meant to make sure that their trajectory was moving back toward God and not slipping across that threshold into death. And so when they found themselves in a Tame state, ritually impure, it wasn't sinful. It was, it was you know, just a time to be intentional and reverent. It wasn't permanent. It was temporary. And there were steps that they could take to move back toward purity. The first step was you had to wait on whatever was going on. You had, you had to wait on the condition to pass. And we'll talk about this in later weeks. This is part of the problem with the laws and part of where Jesus would move against them, right? Because there's you have to wait till the condition passed. And sometimes the conditions don't pass. And then those people are, what, stuck outside? Right? But those cases aside, most of the time, once the condition has passed, this is what they had to do. Three things. They had to wait seven days. So bells should go off seven. Seven days means the new life is coming on the eighth day. So this is a new creation kind of a deal, right? So wait seven days. They had to take a bath, ritual cleansing, and they had to go present themselves to the priest. So the priest could, you know, check that everything was kosher, and then and they could do a little ritual at the tabernacle, and then they would be pure again. 
So they go through the rites of purification. And, and then they, they were back on the eighth day to new cre- full participation, new creation. It's funny, this week I kept thinking about this, um, that having lived through COVID, reading this stuff, like, makes just a little bit more sense to me. Because I've had, we've had some, you know, experience with that, especially at the height of the, the pandemic. We did this sort of thing. The same exact kind of thing. You know, if, if you, you didn't even have to test positive to be considered unclean during the height of the pandemic, right? You had to sit out for a period of days and there were regulations that were, you know, that were recommended five days, seven days, 10 days. Then if you tested positive, had, had symptoms, you, you weren't allowed to participate in society. You're still not. You have to, you are Tame for a while and, and you got to wait till the symptoms pass and, and then um, that, that part, I suppose, is mostly the same s- still now. But then to rejoin society, you had to do basically a modern version of those same three things. There's a kind of waiting period. I think it, now it's five days from your symptoms. Is that what it is? You got to, no matter what, you sit out five days from your symptoms. Um, and then there's the ritual washing, like of your, your body, your sheets, your clothes, masking might might. Um, come into play there. And then you need a, a negative test before you can reenter, which is like going to see the priest. And they check you and see if it's, it's gone or not, right? And, and we made, the, we did this, you know, together. We made very strict cultural rules and procedures for those people among us who had been brought up to the border of life and death. And we live in a secular society. I mean, in, in a world where there, there are no atheists, where everything is religious, you can see where this takes on different symbolic meaning, a kind of reverence, right? And for us, even, even in a secular society, it brought this kind of reverence for the damage we could do in this state if we don't proceed carefully from this Tomei place. It's like Le- Leviticus, man, it's still happening around us. It's not that far from our world. And the central idea about the whole reason for regulations about food and what animals you touch or eat or, or, or blood or um, discharges, rashes, mold, and fungus, it, it, it kind of makes a little more sense when, when you know that those things symbolize the power of death to these people. And so when you get near to them, when they come near to you, you have to take a pause and proceed carefully. This is one of the, the problems with the way Christianity is often understood, like it's some sort of magic potion that can keep us from death, that can help us avoid death, right? Everybody dies. And in the midst of life, I love this thing in the, in the Book of Common Prayer in the funeral liturgy. It's doing some of the Job stuff, like who can we look to for our help in the face of death? And in the Book of Common Prayer in the funeral liturgy, there's this prayer that says, in the midst of life, we are in death. Like the church wrote this, you know, centuries ago and protected it. And at the moment of death, we say this, in the midst of life, we are in death. The dead don't hear that. The people at the funeral hear that. In the midst of life, we are in death. We are constantly negotiating the reality 
of death some way in, in every day. Different seasons of life will come and go and feels like they're dying off because in the midst of life we are in death. Maybe not a literal thing, but things are passing all around us. And in those moments, we need a kind of reverence for what's happening, for what a powerful thing it is to be a human being with all these capacities to shape the world and those around us. And, and we will do, I mean, parents know this more than anybody, we will do horrible, unspeakable things to keep things from dying, even small, insignificant things like just our kid struggling, right? We have so much power to try to avoid death when it's not not possible. It's not possible. Only God has ultimate power over death. And so the real question is, are we even aware of what's happening as we approach these moments in life when we're at the boundary between life and death? Do we have reverence for this? Are we thinking carefully about our trajectory and how we proceed? I was reminded of this this week um, as we dropped off our oldest, Nick, at K-State for the first time. I mean, you have never seen such a sorry mess as me and Kristen and Lewis this week. I mean, it has been, it has been rough around our house. It's because it's, it's death. It's the death of a season of life, right? In which this household was just the four of us, right? And that season of life for us was so rich and full and good and lovely. And now it's dying and I'm ticked. I'm like, <laughs> this is stupid. I have the craziest conversations with God where like, I'm like, you know, when you have a son, God, there is this thing where you don't want, I mean, it just sound ridiculous. Like, um, this, is, this is the kind of thing that's happening. It's happening to me right now. We're at the boundary between life and death, the death of a thing that I have loved and whatever comes next on the other side of that, that I don't know what it is. But in this moment, I'm aware things are not, they don't feel right. It's Tame. It's Tame. There's this um, intensity to it, this emotion to it. Things feel off. It's a Tame season. It's not like something's wrong. I mean, this, this is good. Kids grow up. They go to college. Like, this is natural. But we need to wake up, pay attention. There's some grieving to do. What is passing? There's some reverence that needs to happen for this moment. And it's potential for life or death to move us one way or the other. We need to think carefully about where we go from here and give it some time, right? So we can be sure that the next moves we make are moving us back toward life and something that might feel right again because this feels wrong. Um, it feels like a loss, like a kind of death. And it's, it's painful. I am not doing well. Can you tell? I could just keep going. <laughs> it feels like something is dying, but nothing's wrong. It's just Tom A. And so you pay attention to what's happening. It's not business as usual. You're at the boundary. Things could go either way here. So there's a period of grieving and waiting and remembering and preparation and anticipation and very kind of measured what's next together, right? And I think that we sort of suffer in our society for lack of rituals at this moment in life. 
And for as much as we kind of denigrate the clean and unclean thing for legitimate reasons, that's what they were doing. They were saying, there's a moment here, messing with the powers of life and death. Let's think carefully. Let's take a beat. And um, I think it would help us to kind of create our own rituals of how to navigate this, these kinds of, of times. Um, and, and to, especially in the midst of it, be reminded that, you know, our story is that death is unavoidable, but after death comes a resurrection. I mean, it's embedded in these ceremonies. It's on, after seven days, it's the eighth day. That's when they jump back in. It's like there's always a new week. There's always new creation. Death does not have the final word when you're in this story, when you're pulled up near to this God. I mean, I'm just, I just keep telling myself there's life right on the other side of this, and I need this season to pass because I'm kind of a sad puppy right now, but it will. I'll do my seven days. I'll take my bath. I'll go see the priest, and we'll get on with life and get on with living, and this is why these categories were made, and so as we move into the next few chapters, it's going to get cringy. <laughs> um, but with these categories, I think these things that we usually read, chapters 11 through 15, we're like, this is just bizarre and weird. It's going to really, it's going to speak to us, I think. So keep these in mind as we move forward. In Leviticus, we have been ending each morning with some kind of practice. And today, we're going to just do a quick contemplative practice. So I just invite you to Get comfortable in your chair and sit with your head bowed, your eyes closed. Take a deep breath and breathe out. And find a place of reverence. And just for a couple minutes here, I'm going to give us two things to contemplate. The first is just to think about your own life. And if there is some place in your life where you have been touched by something or you have been um, brought near by something to the border between the powers of life and death. Some circumstance, a challenge, a chance happening, an inner struggle, a sudden change, Is there something, any place in your life where you say, okay, I see this. This is, from this place, this Tom A place, things could go really bad. I should be careful. And maybe another way of asking the, the same thing, the second question is, is there something passing away in your life? And you're struggling to not let it die, and it just needs to die. Is there a way you could maybe admit that to yourself and say, okay, this is Tom A. This is not the way it's supposed to be, and hold a kind of reverence for it. And begin to ask God for how this might be resurrected in the future. Oh God, we confess that we are um, fearfully and wonderfully made with so much power.
bring life and death. And it's a fearful thing to be a human being. And so we hold our lives before you with a sense of reverence. And we seek the wisdom of this teaching. Not that we want to be legalists about clean and unclean, God, but just we want to be aware of when we're messing around with the powers of life and death and proceed carefully and reverently. We pray that you might speak to each of us and lead us in kind of intentional practices that would help us to move forward knowing that we're moving closer to you, God, that we're moving toward purity again of heart and mind and life and function, which is just a way to say love, moving toward love as a way of life. It's hard to live down here, God, and we need your help. Amen. If you would stand, please, we're going to receive communion. The way we do communion, if you're new, is we just um, release row by row, and we'll come forward, and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. And you can just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And as you do, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer however you wish. You say, amen, or I will remember whatever you used to say. And the reason that we do this is that on the night when Christ was betrayed, he did this with his followers. He took a loaf of bread and blessed it and passed it around and said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup, blessed it. We all drank from it. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between humanity and God that's established in, in Christ's life. And then he said, whenever you get together, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life, be made out of the stuff I'm made out of, and then go out into the world and be my hands and feet. And so this is why we do it every week, and this is why we invite anyone who um, calls for help to Christ to join us at the table. So if you would join me and let's pray a blessing. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?